And uh, we will kind of touch on the whole psalm gently, but we're really going to zero in on verse 18. I am calling this an ascension song. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to the song, not just the ascension, but we're especially interested in that because that connects with uh, the messianic idea here. So this uh, also is a psalm of David, as so many of the messianic psalms are. And uh, we see it's a messianic psalm in that Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, very definitely applies uh, Psalm 68, 18 to the ascension of Christ and his distribution of spiritual gifts to his people, the church. Psalm 68 is a psalm of triumph. It's a celebratory procession of ascension that denotes God's victory and how his people share in that victory. It pictures God on the march uh, to his dwelling place in Jerusalem and ultimately to his kingdom rule. The first and the last verses uh, really capture the essence of the psalm in many respects. So note on the overhead, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who hate him flee before him. End of the psalm, O God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The, the God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. Now many commentators believe the occasion for this psalm was probably when David brought the Ark of the Covenant from the house of, of uh, Obed-Edom of Jerusalem, or to Jerusalem, as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, William MacDonald says, <clears throat> This is Israel's national processional, in which the journey of the Ark of the Covenant from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion is seen as symbolizing the march of God to ultimate victory. To the Jewish mind, the Ark rightly represented the presence of God. When the Ark moved... God moved. So this entire psalm really has the feel of a procession that climaxes in triumph and glory to God. And right in the middle of this ascension psalm, right in the middle, is that verse on ascension that is applied to Christ in the New Testament. So in terms of an outline, we might break it down this way. Verses 1 through 6, let God arise against his enemies to the celebration of his people. Verses 7 through 18, God's victorious march from Egypt, Sinai, to Jerusalem. And then 19 through 31, celebration of God's victorious majesty. And then finally, verses 32 through 35, call on the nations to praise the Lord. Well, let's pick it up uh, at the beginning of the psalm here. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, a song. Verse 1, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those also who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Verse 1 adopts the words of Numbers 10.35, which in effect was Israel's marching cry. Whenever they would break camp, God would lead them forward. In Numbers 10.35, it says, So it was, whenever the ark set out, that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. You can see, verse 1 is really uh, pretty much uh, an application of what Moses would say when they were ready to break camp, and the ark, uh, representing the presence of God, was leading them out. So this is a call for God to go before his people 
and defeat his enemies, which is also a blessing for his people. It is God who goes before and leads his people. It is God who fights their battles. It is God who brings them into the promised land and establishes his resting place right there in their midst. Verse 4 continues. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. By his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. These verses really are a poetic description of God's exalted majesty and what he does for his oppressed people. And the call is to praise God for who he is and what he does. It's good to be on God's side because ultimately he comforts and delivers the downtrodden and the oppressed. But in contrast, the rebellious are outside of his blessing. Uh, they dwell in a dry land, as it says here, kind of a barren, dry, unsatisfying land. The name Yah is the shortened form of Yahweh. We see it occasionally in the Old Testament, which speaks of God's everlasting character that never changes. The idea of Yahweh is that he's an unchanging God. He's eternal. His character never changes. And that's where we get the idea of him being faithful. Uh, the reason we know God's faithful is because he doesn't change. And that's really the essence of this name Yahweh, and that's why it's commonly called God's covenant name. Verse 7, O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah. David now traces God's movement from Sinai to his occupation in the sanctuary of Zion in Jerusalem. God is always out in front leading his people. He ever remains the good shepherd leading his people to their destiny. And God is here pictured as marching, marching through the wilderness. Do you catch that? When you march through the wilderness, speaking of God, this is reminiscent of the battle hymn of the Republic, which says, our God is marching on. This is God on the march. Verse 8, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God. The God of Israel. You, O God, sent a plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. It was almost as though nature itself entered into this awesome experience, this awesome event. God's presence was felt. The earth shook. The heavens dropped rain. Sinai was moved. The presence of God was an awesome experience. Well, God works through the weather. It's interesting. He sent rain here. Uh, whereby he confirmed uh, his inheritance. Uh, he's in charge of the weather, and he sent rain here to refresh his weary people on the journey. Now the uh, conquest of the promised land under God's leadership is described in verses 10 through 18. Your congregation dwelt in, you, O God, provided from your goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it, God gave the word. That is the command to take the promised land. And their message, this message, was spread far and wide. Everyone in the camp knew the marching orders and that they were under God's leadership to go forward into the promised land. Verse 12, kings of armies flee. They flee. And she who remains at home divides the spoil. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver 
and her feathers with yellow gold. Verse 14, when the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Zalman. Well, some of this poetic language is a little unclear, but it clearly depicts victorious conquest. Pretty much everybody agrees on that. What's being described ultimately is victorious conquest. Verse 15, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. Now, the mountain of Bashan is thought to poetically refer to probably Mount Hermon, which was in the region of Bashan, way up north. This mountain range with its many peaks is pictured here. There's some figurative language, poetical language here. It's pictured as being jealous of Mount Zion because it is there that the Lord has chosen to dwell forever. This is God's special chosen place. And so again, uh, in descriptive poetical language, it's making the point. Uh, Mount Hermon, way north up here. And then, of course, uh, you come down here to, uh, you know, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So this, these, this is where the tall mountains are up here. Many peaks. But they're like jealous of what's going on down here. It's smaller, but uh, chosen and favored. And it's like they're envious. This is, this is the, the place of envy. Verse 17. <clears throat> Descriptive poetically now of, of how it happened to become the place where God dwelt. Uh, verse 17 The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. The language here is really depicting a behind-the-scenes reality. And it's particularly, we think, in relationship to when David and his men captured the stronghold of the city of David, where God would dwell at the temple in a specialized sense. Now, David knew that in reality, it was not just him that conquered the city. But rather, it was thousands upon thousands of angelic hosts pictured here as riding the chariots. The number 20,000 is the idea of tens of thousands and thousands of thousands, really in the sense of an innumerable number. In view here, God is choosing Zion as his holy place, and then God taking the city with a vast company of angelic hosts, all accomplished through his servant David, But David is very careful here, in effect, to give God the glory for the -the behind-the-scenes spiritual realities. So on the one hand, David and his men did it. But behind the scenes, it was really God and his angelic forces that brought it to pass. And I think that's always the case. We think, boy, we accomplished something. Well, if if really gone forward in the program of God, it's really God behind the scenes working in his mighty ways. Well... It is this conquering reality brought about by God that sets the context for the ascension verse that we now come to in verse 18. You, speaking of God, you have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Now, the language here of ascended on high is the language of going up of assuming the exalted position. Jerusalem from every direction is up. Uh, One always goes up to Jerusalem. It's an exalted place, not simply because of its elevation. There are other higher places, 
up north like we talked about. But uh, it's really an exalted place because it is God's chosen place to dwell. And in doing so, it says God led captivity captive. Now, there may be various nuances here, but the basic idea is that of defeating and taking one's foes captive. In ancient times, when a king won a victory, he would then lead the captives in victory. This leading the captives was a demonstration of the greatness of his triumph. The king would not only lead the captives in victory, he would also share the spoils of the victory with his loyal subjects. Uh, Matthew Henry, the old Bible commentator, says, As great conquerors, when they rode in their triumphal chariots, used to be attended with the most illustrious of their captives led in chains, and were wont to scatter their largesse and bounty among the soldiers and other spectators of their triumphs. So Christ, when he ascended into heaven, as a triumphant conqueror, led captivity captive. That seems to be the sense here. So Paul took this verse in Psalm 66, 18 and made spiritual application to Christ's victory and how at his ascension he has now given spiritual gifts to his church. We read about it in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended... Uh, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. But note uh, that whereas the Hebrew in Psalm sixty-six eighteen says he received gifts, Paul in Ephesians 4, 8 says, he gave gifts. So which was it? It's probably a case of yes. Uh, let me just show you what I'm talking about. Well, before I'm hitting it too much, and so then I jump it, but anyway. Uh, Psalm 66, 18. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men. But then here in Ephesians 4, 8, therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Well, here's a good explanation. Harold Honer, very respected, uh, you know, Greek expert, Bible scholar. Although the two renderings seem to be opposites, they are not incompatible. If, if God receives the spoils of war from the enemies in Psalm 68... It is not beyond understanding that he would give gifts to those who are on his side as a provision from him as portrayed in Ephesians 4.8. A careful study, by the way, of Ephesians 4.8-11 reveals that the emphasis at this point is not on spiritual gifts generally. He does that up earlier in the chapter. But at this point here, it's really not on spiritual gifts generally, but really as, uh, or, or as gifts uh, given to individuals per se, but rather on specific people that God has given to the church. GotQuestions.org uh, says it this way. These gifts were especially the, the gifts to the church of one apostles, two prophets, three evangelists, and four pastors and teachers. 
really pastor teachers. Uh, Ephesians 4.11, these four gifts were not gifts given to individuals. Rather, they were people uh, who filled these roles and were given to the church so that it might be built up properly as God designed. The four categories of people given as gifts to the church are unique in that they have special word-based, word-oriented ministries. Everything builds on the word in terms of the building of the church. That is why I think these four categories of people given to the church are singled out for special mention. They have ministries that are uniquely word-based ministries in a special sense. The growth and the maturity of the church develops out of these specialized word-oriented ministries. Uh, These people are Christ's gift to the church. Alexander Strzok puts it this way. Ephesians 4.11 refers to spirit-gifted shepherds. And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Here Paul is speaking of spirit-gifted persons, not the office of overseer, elder. Not all spirit-gifted shepherds have to be elders. The eldership is a shepherding body. But some elders, not all, are spirit-gifted shepherds. I agree with what Alexander Strzok is saying there. There's an emphasis on the people that Christ has given to the church here. Now, it is interesting to note that the Jews incorporate Psalm 68 into their feast, what we call Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, which relates to the time when Christ sent the Spirit and thus began the outpouring of the the gifts of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. These gifts are ultimately from Christ based on his victory at the cross. So the church is not an afterthought. It was tucked, hidden away in the Old Testament all the time. And now with the unraveling, the the revealing uh, in redemptive history in the New Testament, we see how it all aligns perfectly with God's sovereign plan and program. As has often been stated, the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed, and the New is in the Old concealed. How true. Well, verses 19 through 31 now uh, consist of basking in God and the victory and blessing that he accomplishes for his people. Verse 19, Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation, Selah. ESV translates this, who daily bears us up, loads us with benefits. Uh, King James, uh, ESV, daily bears us up. God continually preserves and sustains us day by day. Verse 20, our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Truly our times are in God's hands, and the ultimate escape from death, of course, is, is certainly spiritual and eternal based on what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Uh, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 21. But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may crush them in blood, and the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from your enemies. Again, very poetical language. What does all this mean? Well, some commentators, by the way, think that the hairy scalp in the ancient world represented long hair worn as a symbol uh, of one having dominant power over others, kind of in a rebel fashion. 
Uh, certainly this person described here is an unrepentant rebel against God. Bringing back from Bashan evidently refers to bringing back enemies uh, in the sense of leading cap- captives, leading the captives, uh, leading uh, the captives back from the furthest regions. The idea is that these enemies shall not escape. Rather, God's people will crush them. Verse 24, they have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my king in the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players on the instruments followed after. Among them were the the maidens playing timbrels. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the, the fountain of Israel. The picture here is of a triumphal procession celebrating the the victory of God over his enemies. Note in verse 18, it is God that has ascended on high, and this truth is applied to Jesus in Ephesians 4, showing us again that Jesus is God. Here in verse 24, God is said to be king. And indeed, further revelation reveals clearly that the king is ultimately Jesus. So in both cases, we see these connections over and over uh, that Jesus is in fact God. He's the God king. William MacDonald says, the psalmist in effect says, look, here he comes. In this celebration, all the tribes are represented. Those in the south, Benjamin and Judah. And those in the north, Zebulun, Naphtali. Verse 27, there is little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah and their company, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. Your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us. The scene now fast forwards prophetically to the time of the kingdom when God's triumph victory for his people will be complete. Verse 29. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring presents to you. Rebuke the beasts of the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. In the kingdom, Jerusalem will be the city of the great king. This will be the worship center of the world. And there the kingdom temple will be. And it will be there that the kings of the earth bring their gifts, their offerings, their worship. Symbolically, the call is for God to rebuke the the beast-like rebels of the world, till everyone submits. And those humbled come with, a, with tribute money, signifying submission and subservience to God the King. Well, this will include the ancient Egypt. Egypt is known as an ancient enemy of Israel, but they'll come around in this, at this time, and even faraway places such as Ethiopia. In that day, they will all come in humble worship, bringing gifts and offerings with them. And that brings us to the end of the psalm, Psalm 32 through 35 present the climax of the liturgical procession. Uh, Here the call is for all nations to give praise to God for what he has done in relation to Israel. Verse 32, sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. O sing praises to the Lord, Selah. To him who rides on the heaven of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel. And his strength is in the clouds. O God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. 
The New American Standard translates verse 35, O God, thou art awesome from thy sanctuary. Indeed, he will be so from the sanctuary in the kingdom. Now, we often, rightfully so, place tremendous emphasis on the resurrection of Christ. But his ascension is likewise filled with tremendous significance. And I want, as I close here and make some application, kind of zero in on this for a few moments. Consider a few points in relationship to the ascension. Number one, Christ's ascension represents his victory over Satan and his exaltation over all. Lots of places we could go, but a key one is found in Ephesians chapter 1. We pick it right up. It's a long sentence in the Greek, so we're kind of jumping right into the middle of a sentence here. But, uh, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. So as we think about the ascension, it represents his his being exalted, his exalted position overall. Number two, Christ in his ascension left, he left uh, us behind here, but he left blessing his people. Uh, We read about the ascension at the end of Luke chapter 24. Christ says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So he says, you just wait. And of course, we know what he's ultimately talking about, the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And then, of course, he ascended on up into heaven. But how did he leave? Well, he left uh, ascending, uh, blessing his people. Number three, Christ in his ascension is now seated at the Father's right hand, indicating his sacrificial work has been completed and accepted. We read about this in different places again, but a key one here is in Hebrews chapter 10. But this man, speaking of Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. Where? Well, at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And then number four, uh, Christ in his ascension sent special gifts, uh, people gifts, uh, to his people, the church, uh, for the building up of the body, as we've already noted. And of course, beyond that, all the spiritual gifts. Uh, you know, we talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, he sent the Holy Spirit. All of these things are kind of the spoils uh, of the victory that he has now bestowed upon his people and came to us in the ascension. And finally, number five, Christ in his ascension is now in the position of being our special representative whoever lives to make intercession for us. We read about this in Hebrews again, a lot in Hebrews as far as intercession. Uh, Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. He, He became a human just like us. He went through the human experience. Yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may attain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's there for us. 
And he says in Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is able also to save to the uttermost those who come to, to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Well, everything we enjoy today in terms of spiritual power and giftedness is really connected to the ascension of Christ. His victory was total. I mean, it's because of the victory of the cross that now we have the spoils of the, of the victory that he now shares with his people and he's poured out these spiritual gifts on us, his church. And so we say with David, O sing praises to the Lord, verse 32, the God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. Amen. Well, next week, Lord willing, we'll look at uh, 69. And, uh, you know, in chapter 68, we have this tremendous emphasis on the, uh, the, the victory and the spoils of the victory and the gifts that are given to God's people. Uh, 69, it talks about what Christ endured to gain the victory and what he went through on the cross and so forth. So we'll look at that, Lord, Lord willing, next, next uh, Sunday night. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close this in prayer this evening.